Great, okay. My privilege to be um, preaching the second in this series on uh, the... Uh, on stewarding the environment, we're calling this little series Planet Wise. I did an introduction last week. Uh, I want to say um, next week, I'm looking forward to it because it'll be a little bit more familiar, back to a more usual style for me. Also, we've got some exciting things for you to do and some uh, things to, uh, by way of response. But we did feel when we were approaching this series that uh, it wasn't just a, about sort of advocating recycling, and we certainly do that and trying to do that well. It was more than that, that there were some fundamental issues. There was a whole worldview thing that we needed to think about if we were going to be effective in being good stewards of the environment. So <clears throat> last week, and to some extent this week, it may be a little bit drier, maybe a little bit challenging. I, I kind of feel like I want to apologize, but I'm not going to apologize because I think sometimes to exercise our brains and think about things does, does us good. So without any further apologies, uh, I'm going to pray and we'll get straight into it. Holy Spirit, I just want to say thank you to you because um, this is a year in which we're coming of age. This is a year when we are growing up. This is a year where we are taking responsibility in so many different ways as a community. And uh, this is a year, Lord God, where we want to see you lifted up and glorified, not just in our lives and this community's life, but in, in the, the, the land in which we live. Lord God, in the midst of all these, the stress and the difficulties and the challenges politically and the turmoil we're seeing in the world, all these birth pangs, that, birth pangs and pains that your scriptures speak about, Lord, we want to see Jesus lifted up and glorified. And we in your church, Lord God, want to be amongst the very foremost and first to, to herald in the new age of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing and your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, we introduced this topic. We started by looking at 1 Colossians 15, um, and uh, we, we said how, we, we began with Christ, we, we said how we see Christ in that passage, and our mindset is that Christ is, uh, is the source of all things. All things are created through him and for him that Christ is the sustainer of all things. Again, 1 Colossians 15, you know. And then Christ is the savior of all things. And we unpacked that a little bit amongst other things and, and, and just saw that how everything hangs on him. Christ, our savior. Christ, who is God himself. Christ, who came to earth as a baby and will be celebrating that at Christmas. Christ, who bore the sins of the world, my sin, your sin. Christ, who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and, and reigns and rules there now. And we are, as it were, the first, the, we, we are savoring the first taste of his kingdom that is among us and is still to come. And so we find ourselves in this in-between time, between the time that Jesus was and, the Jesus, and waiting for Jesus to come. And we're celebrating and, and seeing and, and being good news. That's all part of this. And that extends to the environment. You know, there's so much talk about the environment at the moment. And, you know, much of it is good and some of it is just plain wacky. But actually, the Church of Jesus Christ has something to say. We also looked last week at Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read that again to you. Uh, follow on in your own Bibles or on the screen or on your smart devices. But we said something there because it's sometimes lost. It's lost in the church of Jesus Christ that the, the creation has a part in, in this 
present time, that creation, as it were, is, is almost like an identity, like a personification of God's blessing. And, and we sometimes just use and abuse creation and, and, and feel sorry for bits of creation, you know, seals on the beach and caught up in plastic and stuff like that. But actually, there's a fundamental thread, a river, if you will, flowing through scriptures about, about God's creation. But it says here in Romans chapter 8, Paul writing to the Romans, beginning at verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth anything comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation awaits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul is making this simple point, but powerful point, that creation itself is longing for Jesus to return. He's longing for, for the sons and daughters of the Most High, of which you and I have the great privilege, the awesome privilege of being counted. He's longing uh, for, for Jesus to come again. Why? Because in our salvation, in the consummation, as it were, of all that God has in mind for us, it's also good news for creation. Why? Because creation, not of its own will or volition, has been subjected to the same decay and destruction that we see at work in our society. You know, creation you know, was minding its own business, as it were, but it got caught up in this, this great disaster we call the fall. So now it struggles and creaks and groans. And as we look at the world today, as we begin to consider some of the ecological questions we see a creation, we see a world that is creaking and groaning, not just because of the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the typhoons and the earthquakes, but you know, the, the, the living beings themselves are struggling as their habitats are destroyed. They're struggling to keep up with the decay that has been unleashed among us. And that's an important thing to remember. And it's important because the church, as I said last week, has, you know, there's, there's three camps. There's one who couldn't care less and didn't even give it a second thought. There's those who feel that we ought to be doing more for, for creation. I'm certainly edging that way, moving quite rapidly that way. And then there's also you know, a worthy group of, of, of Christians who actually say, but Chris, wait a minute, don't you, uh, don't you see that actually this creation is going to all fall apart? And in fact, God is going to sort of burn it all up. It's all going to be swept away. And it's not going, and then God's new thing. We're all going to heaven, and heaven is sort of up, you know? We're all going upwards, as it were. And all this is going to be left behind. So quite frankly, you know, it's nice to sort of live in nice places with, where the trees haven't all been chopped down for firewood and all the rest of it. And where, you know, yes, of course. And, you know, we do understand that the poor struggle if we deforest their land and all this kind of stuff. But actually, Chris, you know, it's, don't worry. Don't get in a strop about it because it's all going to be swept away and God's going to do a whole brand new thing. And we will just be walking on fresh grass that has never been walked on before. Well, I don't agree. 
I actually don't think that's what the scripture says. In fact, the kingdom of God of which Jesus spoke so much is among us. It's breaking in upon us. And as N.T. Wright says, the kingdom of God actually is not up there on beyond the clouds. The kingdom of God is down here. And what we are experiencing is the birth pangs of God's kingdom breaking in on this. And what God starts, 1 Peter 1, he will finish. It may look like sometimes that the church and Jesus is on the back foot. But actually, what God starts, he will finish. And so this good news, which for me personally, speaking very personally, but it's for you too, is a gospel whereby you know, I get saved, my sins are forgiven, and then God works in me and sanctifies me, much to my wife's relief, as I get nicer to live with. All right, fair enough, suit yourself. Um, <laughs> As God redeems me and transforms me and and works in me, so God is and will be at work in his creation. And we have a part in that. I'm going to say more about that next week. Was that a clap or somebody dropping something? (laughs) I'm going to say it's somebody clapping. Thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I I, I thank you. I thank you. All of that is to say this. You know, let's... Before we get onto the fun stuff next week, let's just be sure that we're all pointing in the right, the right direction. Let's try and understand where there are some tensions and some contradictions in Christian thinking. Because if we're going to be any use to God, we need to be clear where the errors are and where the problems are when it comes to our view of creation. And I've got this kind of clunky thing which made me smile. It probably won't make you smile at all. But, uh, you know, I, I want to say that the problem is dualism, mechanism, and the end of the world. Ta-ra! <laughs> That's going to be the title of my next bestseller. Not. Basically, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit for you. But basically, the Jewish and biblical view of humanity is one of wholeness. So when, even this day, if you have a Jewish background, even this day, if you wish somebody shalom, you're not just saying peace or blessing, which is a nice thing to say. You're actually saying wholeness. Restoration and wholeness. That every part of you be blessed. Let every cell of your being be infused with the favor of God. Now that is a wonderful thing. And that's actually God's plan for us in terms of salvation. Total well-being. But what we have done very, very assiduously over the last four or five hundred years is try to dissect. It began with us adopting, adopting sort of some elements of Greek thinking where they thought that you know, the spirit was one thing, one's human spirit was one thing, but the flesh was the other. And that gave rise to all sorts of things. You could be absolutely spirit-filled and righteous, but what the body got up to 
It just didn't really matter. So you could have orgies and carrying-ons and, and all sort of manner of, of hideous stuff going on. But that was fine because that was the flesh and the flesh was going to be got rid of. But the mind, the spirit, you know, that was where we truly excel. But the flesh can do what it likes, which was an awful way of excusing an enormous amount of foul behavior, right? It began with the Greeks, but then in our own story, you know, there were three things, three elements. You know, I call it dualism, mechanism, and the end of the world. But actually what I'm talking about there is, is the enlightenment. Now, please understand this, and my wife pulled me up on this quite rightly. You know, when I'm, as I'm listing these things, I'm going to list two, two things in particular where I see a problem. Uh, please understand that I'm not saying that the Enlightenment was bad. Much came out of this thing we call the Enlightenment, began around the beginning of the 18th century. It was an examination, it was the age of reason when we began to sort of consider things and, 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 tried, uh, and tried to step back, as it were, in order to view things better, to, uh, to analyze and to understand. It was a time of great creativity, a, cri a great art. It was also a time where, much, where, where religion became unfashionable. Not entirely, but there was a kind of a distancing itself from theological thought. You know, people wanted to think about life unencumbered by God. So there was a birth there of, of an age of understanding, inverted commas, that was birthed there. And that with the sort of rediscovery of, of Greek thought and Greek architecture, you've just got to walk around central London, the number of Palladian fronts and all the rest of it, you know, built around the beginning of the 18th century, you know, with a great, great, great enthusiasm for all things Greek. What we were doing there, we were separating God from it or trying to tease that out. So what, what we were actually doing, what we didn't realize, we were taking what, that which was whole, and we were breaking it down into elements. We were saying, well, what I think can be different to what I do. And I might have the highest ethics and models, but actually I can visit prostitutes and all the rest of it. You know, there was this teasing apart. Now, that was the kind of atmosphere, that kind of, and, that, and again, much good and great stuff came out of that. But it was into that context that we had the French Revolution was birthed and you know, all sorts of turmoil in Europe. And at the same time, at the same time, in this great burst of creativity, and all, you know, this creativity I'm sure was a gift from God, we also had the birth of the Industrial Revolution in this country and elsewhere. The Industrial Revolution, where for years, for hundreds of years, we had been an agrarian society with very simple ways of living. Admittedly, for the poor, it was subsistence living. And there are many, you know, many you know, examples of, of great poverty and great injustice. But what the Industrial Revolution did, and there were wonderful inventions, wonderful breakthroughs, wonderful advancements, things that we're still benefiting in these days. What that started to do was to move people off the land give them a steady job, give them a means of, uh, of shelter, give them uh, you know, a means of feeding their family throughout the year. All of that has to be good, doesn't it? And if you were employed by the round trees and, or you know, some of the great Quaker families, and by the way, if you didn't know it, the vineyard movement was birthed out of the Quaker movement. But the, 
the Quaker families, they, they had a great moral ethic whereby they would employ people and they would make sure that there were healthcare, there were schools, there were, you know, there was a whole social package. And they saw it as their religious duty to care for their workers, but that wasn't always the case. And in many sweatshops throughout the sort of cities, the burgeoning cities of the UK, you know, uh, the environment was the very last thing people were thinking of. And so Christians, amongst many, but Christians who were in business, who were entrepreneurs and who, you know, spawned so much, so much good. At the same time, they started looking for a theology that, or a philosophy where they didn't have to worry about the environment so much. And they found it in, in verses like um, 2 Peter 3. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to look there in a minute. I'm not going to go there now where it talks about you know, fire coming and, and destroying everything. And they liked that kind of verse because it, it kind of gave them an excuse for, for not caring for the environment. And again, they were, because of that which they'd learned through the, you know, the wisdom of the enlightenment and the previous couple of hundred years, they were separating themselves and separating what they did from the, what, you know, what they were, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in that time, you know, there was extraordinary advances, but extraordinary abuse of the environment. And I, I um, have a bit of a connection with Cornwall. My, my uncle had a house there. We used to go down there every year when I was a kid. And we used to love the sight of those, uh, what they called Cornish Alps. Do you know what I mean? Those great big white sort of mountains. They're just kale in soil tips industrial soil tips. Look great in the glinting sun, but my gosh. Or we would go for long walks with my uncle, who was a great walker, and as I said last week, it teach me things about the, the environment and about the, the world around us. And, and you come across lovely picturesque old derelict buildings, and a very uh, and a unique kind of uh, landscape of, of bracken and, and blackberries and all that kind of thing on very lumpy ground. This was, these were just old mine workings where they had destroyed the countryside, where they had ravished it. And the picturesque things, you know, if you go to Cornwall, you can still buy a little, little clay model, a little pottery model to put on your mantelpiece of an old, you know, mine working. There was a careless disregard for the environment. And all of this was justified, why? Because we were make, giving jobs, we were making money, and actually all this was gonna be replaced one day anyway. God was gonna come and do a whole new thing, and do away with the old stuff. So all of these things, I don't wanna, I'm majoring on it, but I don't wanna you know, put too much weight on it, but all of these things represented a change, a fundamental change in our thinking, whereby, whereby we found ourselves abusing the environment rather than stewarding the environment. Now, scroll on today, and boy, as I've said already, the environment is creaking and groaning. It is, some would say, in its death throes. Isn't it scandalous that that list of creatures that are on the verge of extinction 
is growing, not diminishing. It's growing. As I said last week, 50% of the world's wildlife has gone in the last 20 years. 20 years. We started this church 30 years ago. So in two-thirds of the time, half of the world's uh, wildlife has gone. That's what you know, WWF is saying and what have you. So anyway, we find ourselves in this situation. The Industrial Revolution. There were commentators at that time who were saying, wait a minute, hang on. What's, what's going on here? You know, are, are we, yeah, yay for progress, yay, let's hear it. For, but wait a minute, what are we doing? William Blake, that great uh, artist and poet, he wrote this poem which you may find familiar. He said this in response to the Industrial Revolution. He said, and did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? Sound familiar? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Even contemporary commentators thought something was going awry. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Not dark satanic mills, but Jerusalem. This, of course, was set to music not long after. Actually, it was probably about 100 years later, and of course, now we know it as the hymn Jerusalem. But William Blake wrote that, deeply perturbed and disturbed, because he saw that in the gains we were also losing something that was not easily regained. The third element in my you know, dualism, mechanism, and the end of the world, the first thing, just to recap, the first thing is the, the introduction of, or, or the appreciation of Greek thought where we compartmentalize ourselves, contrary to the way the Bible sees us. The second thing is the mechanism, the mechanization of everything whereby we create these sweatshops and these extraordinary uh, places, these dark satanic mills which we think are a blessing and maybe they were, but maybe they weren't. And what, what, what did it do to the environment? The third thing that we struggle with now, but wasn't a problem then, was ap- apocalyptic literature. Now, we've touched on this before, and I, I don't think we have a great problem here, at least I hope not. But the thing about apocalyptic literature, you know, the, the, the book of Revelation, uh, the, the, you know, much in that is in Daniel, there are elements of it throughout the scriptures. Apocalyptic literature is a particular genre. It's a style of literature. The problem is that many good, honest, evangelical Christians like us take it literally. And frankly, they get into a terrible pickle. Because they do not understand what apocalyptic literature is. I'll give you my working definition. I'm afraid it's a little bit long-winded, which in my view, if it's long-winded, it's not a good definition. I probably need to do some more work on it. But maybe it's good enough for you to get a grip of, a grasp of what I'm trying to say. Biblical apocalyptic literature is a complex system of metaphors drawing on a biblical worldview and using the language of catastrophic disasters and natural phenomenon to describe events or seasons of profound turmoil 
and change, heralding the birth pains of the kingdom of God. A bit long-winded. If somebody says to you, I don't know whether anybody does these days, but if somebody says to you, it's raining cats and dogs outside, how many of you know that expression? How many of you? Oh, half of us, maybe more of us. You don't run out there ex- expecting to see a tabby cat and two Pomeroys running around the car park. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. The Jewish readers would have, understand, would have understood that apocalyptic literature is a metaphor. The main thing to note is the, is the coming of the kingdom of God. And there are allusions to various things, but it's not to be taken literally. And, and so help me God forgive me, Lord, if I'm wrong. Maybe it is, but my understanding is that the, way, the best way to study the scriptures is to study it in whole, not in part. So it's always dangerous when somebody takes one proof text out and shoves that in your face and say, ah, but, but, but. You know, if it's taken out of context, if it's not consistent with the broad spread of salvation history, if it's not consistent with the God we know who loves everything that he has made, then we have a problem. So apocalyptic literature always needs to be read understanding that the writer is wrestling in partnership with the Spirit of God to express the most and and to indicate the most extreme, drastic, dynamic events that are going to happen. And he's trying to use language that we might conceivably relate to. Now, in Jewish times, not a problem. Great tradition of of apocalyptic literature. They knew the language. They knew the symbolism. um, They knew the the nuances. And so it wasn't so much of an issue. But for us in the 21st century, it is an issue. I mean, I'm no great authority on this, so forgive me if I'm getting this hopelessly wrong. But um, I understand that rap music, for example, and I know there's all sorts of derivatives of that now, so if I'm sounding like an idiot, then please forgive me. Some of you, Emma's already grinning, so I am already sounding like an idiot. (laughs) But, you know, rap music, as I understand it, was birthed through, uh, you know, urban black youth who were frustrated and angry about the situations that they found themselves, and so they started expressing themselves through the creative arts, and rap was birthed. And uh, in that, there's a whole, there's, it's a whole genre, there's a whole language, there's, it has its own symbolism, it has its own uh, vocabulary, it has its, its own you know, tensions and, and, and what have you. And, and for us, you know, even me, you know, if I hear a bit of it, I, I, I kind of know what's going on. I may be shocked by some of the language and some of the expressions, uh, but I, I kind of know what's happening. Now, now scroll forward 2,000 years if the Lord Jesus, you know, kind of dallies. Supposing you were to put on, uh, you know, uh, the equivalent of a, a, a CD in 2,000 years' time, I'm already showing my age, and listen to some rap music. You wouldn't know what the heck was going on if you didn't understand the background and the culture, if you didn't understand where this came from. 
if you didn't understand the tensions and the frustrations, if you didn't understand the aspirations, if you didn't understand the socioeconomic things. You just, we, we've got a vague understanding of that, so we say, yeah, well, okay, we know. But in 2,000 years time, that'll all be lost, I imagine. So it'll just be complete, what is this thing? Well, similarly, we find ourselves in that place with apocalyptic literature. We just don't understand that genre. It's just not something we use. And so it sounds excessive and it sounds extraordinary and it sounds, you know, uh, too much. Now, why am I majoring on this? I'm majoring on it because brothers and sisters of mine in many parts, in fact, I had one of our, our own people come up to me last week, after last week's sermon, uh, and said to me, Chris, you know, I really appreciate this series. I'm looking forward to what you've got to say next week. Because to be honest with you, I think, you know, uh, I believe that um, God is going to just destroy everything and that we're all going to be saved and go to heaven uh, and then he's going to you know, start all over again with a new, a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth. It says that in the Bible, doesn't it? And I realized then that, you know, that if my own friends, and this guy is, is, is theologically you know, pretty sharp, he's knows his Bible, and I realize that this is a problem because if, if, if we don't believe it matters to God, if we believe it's all gonna get swept away anyway, then our heart's not gonna be in any of this thing that God is calling us to, in my opinion. So I'm majoring on this because, for example, let me just read you what is often used as a proof text for this kind of throwaway attitude. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 bit of apocalyptic literature here, um, sorry, verse seven. It says here, by the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire. Wow, this is, this is in the Bible. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This passage is often what is used when people are having to make a case for this. Verse 10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. It sounds like God is gonna destroy everything, doesn't it? That's what you and I could reasonably you know, surmise from that. But actually, that's just one verse. There's another little passage in Revelation which would suggest the same sort of thing. But when we look at the whole of scripture, we say, well, no, no, that's not the God I know that would do that. That's not the God that I've grown to love and understand. And also, when we start to look at the, the, you know, the, what the script actually says, for example, when it talks about the heavens and earth being reserved for fire, we think of you know, like forest fires and California, we've seen it on the news a lot recently, utter destruction. In fact, one of my own friends who lives out in California, his neighbor's house caught on fire. Nothing to do, this was just last week, nothing to do with the, uh, you know, the, the wildfires, these terrible fires, but his neighbor's house got caught, caught on fire. And he was just praying to God that there would be no wind because what was an, a normal house fire, if one can say a normal house fire, could have become an absolute disaster. As it was, you know, he, his, his porch got singed and what have you, but thank God, you know, it didn't develop into something else. 
You know, when we think of fire, we think of utter destruction. Now, fire in the scripture, particularly in apocalyptic language, is more of a, a Malachi 3 thing. Let's just turn this up. I think I'm going to have it up on the screen. Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. Let me just read this to you. This is more of a biblical understanding of what fire is about. So, uh, Malachi 3, verses 2 to 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a, refiner, a refiner's fire or a laundress soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. You see, when the scriptures talk of fire, fire is always used for cleansing, for refining. Rarely is it used for destruction. It's the means by which, you know, you know, the Holy Spirit comes with, holy, with, with, with fire to cleanse us, to empower us. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, his people, to bring about God's heart in us. So when scripture talks about fire, it doesn't mean a complete destruction. It means about refining and cleansing. Yes, is creation going through and going to have to go through a process of cleansing? Yes, just like you and I have had to go through a process of cleansing and uh, you know, transformation, God working on us. But all of this is to say this. I hope today I've put forward a case for you understand that God is not planning on destroying this earth that we walk on, that in fact we're going to see heaven on earth, that actually heaven is in, if anything, I don't know how to describe this, but in a parallel dimension, we're not going to go up into the clouds when Jesus creates his new heaven and new earth. We're not going to fall through a hole in the floor and go down to hell, although I believe in the reality of hell. It's not up and down. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. And what we see happening here is God birthing in us and through us his new kingdom. So, as the band comes up, we finish with this same Statement last week. Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. Listen carefully. I make all things new, says Jesus. He's not saying, I'm gonna, I'm sick and tired of a lot of you, I'm gonna start anew. He's saying, I make all things new. And if that's our Father's heart, if that's what's on his mind, it behoves us to fall in line with his plan and to begin to care for those things that he cares for. Amen? Let's all stand. Let me just pray. Father God, I want to say thank you to you. Uh, Lord, help us to not be confused. Help my words not to have confused. But Lord God, please, you know, may there be clarity. 
Help us, Lord God, as we sung earlier on, to align every cell in our being with the rhythm of your heart. Help us to see things aright. Help us to care for and love those things that you care for and love. May we care for our, and love our neighbor. May we care and love for the environment upon which our neighbor depends, particularly in the two-thirds world. May we be part, and we've prayed this before, may we be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And everyone said, Amen.